Today we are going to continue emulating Abraham's working faith. We're, we're spending time in this section here. Chris just read it. Well, we're learning about Abraham. We've seen how he obeyed the call this week, how he is going to obey by living as a sojourner. He's going to trust in the promise, a promise that he, he never actually sees it realized. And I'm excited about today because it's extremely practical. The title of the sermon is Sojourn Like Abraham. As this preacher is writing to this beleaguered church, this church that has begun to distance themselves from the gospel and the new covenant, sometimes not even meeting together, they're drifting, he's calling them back. He's calling them to draw near, to hold fast, to realize the anchor of their soul is not here in this world. And in describing what a living, working faith looks like, the same faith that saved us is the same faith that will sanctify us, that will carry us through to the end. In describing that, that working faith, he's using characters, Old Testament characters, characters drawn from the Old Covenant. He's taught us about how Abel gave of his best, about how Noah obeyed, how Abraham also obeyed and went out, leaving everything to a land that he did not know, to a people he did not know, to receive land, seed, and blessing, and most of that he would not see during his lifetime. And yet he trusted. And this week he continues this theme, and he's going to describe Abraham's working faith as a sojourner. And if you're taking notes, and I would really encourage you to do so because this is this is incredibly rich, incredibly practical. We want to look at both how Abraham sojourned in a land that he was promised, but he didn't yet own, and then why he was able to do that. The ramifications for the church today are amazing. Our timeless truth, the church needs to live and think like a sojourner who trusts God's timing on His promises. The church needs to live and to think like a sojourner who trusts God's timing on His promises. You see, the, the church in the first century, this church of Hebrew Christians, had started to not trust God's timing. Persecution was, was getting difficult. It was getting uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe they read something wrong. Maybe this new covenant wasn't as good as they thought. Maybe their calling wasn't real, and they wanted to go back. They wanted to release some of the pressure. And so he is going to draw to mind the greatest Old Testament picture of faith, Abraham. Would you pray with me? We'll look at it together. Father, as we gather together as a body of believers... We have studied your word this morning. We have prayed together. We've asked for sweet unity. We've asked for effectiveness. We've asked that we might be used by you to take part in the advancement of your kingdom. We've asked your forgiveness. We have sought to overlook an offense, to serve well, to worship deeply. 
and to grow, grow in Christ-likeness. And then we spent time in fellowship, and then in song, and then in Scripture reading. And now we come to what is called the ministry of your word, where we seek to sit under your word, to not only learn it, but to embrace it and to respond in worship. Worship that shows itself in a spiritual service of worship with our very lives. We want to understand not only the doctrinal aspect of this great gift of faith which you have given us, but we want to live it. We want it to work out in our lives. We want to be a people who have been called into service. And this side of heaven, with both our own sin and the consequences of others and the result of the fall, it is difficult. We will be maligned. We will be mocked. We will be persecuted. Life will be difficult. And yet we have these promises in Scripture these promises to look forward to, these promises that we will not ultimately realize in our lifetime. And so, Father, I pray that we would be like Abraham. We would be sojourners, never wavering in our trust of You, never wavering on Your Word, for You are God who cannot lie. Seeing the difficult times as momentary light affliction, seeing each opportunity as one that we may walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand, seeing adversity as a time where you hammer and strengthen our faith and purify it and purify a people for your own possession. Father, may we hear this word fresh in the same way the Hebrew church in the first century heard this word. May it pierce us May we realize how soft we have become as followers of Christ. And as we look at Abraham, who had no Bible, who lived on the front side of the cross rather than the back side, but yet he responded in faith. And he lived in faith, so much so that he was willing to live in tents in a land that was promised to him because he was looking forward to the city of God. Father, there is so much here. I pray that you would help me to cut it straight. I pray that I would be clear. I pray that I would be encouraging to these saints. We are a church family that loves you dearly. We have flaws. We sin against you. We are oftentimes ungrateful of the redemption and the sanctification from our Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, we are a family that wants to please you and wants to find joy in you. And so we pray for your patience with your children, and we pray that this word would instruct our faith, would shape us, would draw us near, would fan the affections of our heart, and that these next few moments would be such a time of great joy and great response to your word that we would leave here today with energy to do your bidding throughout the week. And Father, when we leave here today, would you impress upon us so greatly those in our circle of influence, those in our family, our friends who are lost 
who do not know Jesus Christ, who have yet to bow the knee. And would you compel us to take what we learn here today and go to them and share with them the good news, regardless of how embarrassed it may make us. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel because someone was not ashamed to give it to us. Now shape us this morning with your word. Strengthen us with it. And may you be glorified by our response. And all God's people said, Amen. It's going to divide into two points today. Two points. It's the how and the why. The first one is, working faith lives like a sojourner. Working faith lives like a sojourner, and working faith thinks like a sojourner. If you'll notice, most of the time I'm very linear in my preaching, and it's primarily because I want to preach it like the Word gives it to us. This is the way the text breaks down. And as a result, because it is systematized in the Word, it will be systematized in how we remember it. And God is also so gracious in the practicality in that we need to understand, this is not just about, hey, look at Abraham, he's a great example. It's watch Abraham. Watch how he did it. And as we watch how he did it, we need to be able to ask the question, why was he able to do it? Why was he able to be faithful, to trust to be obedient, putting one foot in front of another, to live in, in, in what most people would consider a, a, a life where things didn't get better, though promises have been made. Why was he able to do that? I need to know that. Well, the Bible tells us. And so as I structure this, or as I repeat the structure this way, hopefully it is an encouragement to you that you don't walk out of here and say, oh, that was great, that was inspirational, that was exciting, I didn't know that. But you're walking out, as it were, with, with a handyman and a tool belt. And you have these tools by which to live during the week. Amen? All right. Working faith lives as a sojourner. Look at verse 9 again. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. I wrote down here, patiently, day by day, waiting on God's timing, never putting down roots, but instead living in tents. Why is that a picture of faith? Continually put yourself in the shoes of the original audience. Small church, probably no bigger than ours, probably a bit smaller. Nero is emperor. You're Jewish. You have pressure from the outside world, the pagan world, and pressure from your own family who is steeped in Judaism. It is, in, it is their entire life. You're rejected by both. You've lost so much. Friendship, relationships, certainly opportunities to make money, social circles. You probably don't even live in the area you used to. How is pointing us to Abraham, a sojourner, going to be an encouragement for us as we walk through this life? Well, let's start with that question. Remember, God called Abraham out of his home, what he knew, Ur the Chaldees. 
if you'll remember Genesis 12 last week, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. He's promised him land will find out seed and blessing. But then he gets specific in verse 7. You don't need to turn there yet. He says, to your descendants, I will give the land. To your descendants. So he's promised the land, but then he finds out it's actually his descendants that will receive the promise. Stephen in the first century, in Jerusalem, right before his martyrdom, is preaching, and he references this. Acts chapter 7, verse 5, talking about Abraham. He says, But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So Abraham has the infallible, inspired Word of God, a promise that he will give him a land, but he's not going to see the fulfillment of that promise during his lifetime. And so Abraham, trusting, becomes a Bedouin. Listen to some of these verses. Now Abraham, I'm going to point out some of these things, journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. That's from Genesis chapter 20. Chapter 21, and Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines many days. Chapter 35, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And of course, we know Jacob did the same thing. Esau became a skillful hunter, but Jacob, what? Sojourned in tents. Three generations so far who had this, this promise that was as, as good as done, but yet it wasn't done. And so what was their response to be? The Bible says that their faithfulness was shown in walking upon the land that they did not yet actually own. They sojourned. What must that have been like? I mean, can you imagine if God came to you one day and said, uh, Joe, I'm going to give you the King Ranch in South Texas. 825,000 acres of prime ranch land, the most famous ranch of all time. You say, great, you believe it. You leave everything, you sell out, you go down there in your pickup with everything loaded in the back. And over the next 50 years, you never so much as build a cabin, not even an outhouse, and you live out of the back of your pickup truck. That's the level of what's going on here. You're meant almost to, to say, well, why? I don't get it. What is he believing? What is he not doing? Abraham sojourned. The connection is a living, working faith may not see all the promises in his lifetime, but he believes it. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, he believes it. 
A persecuted church may not see all of the promises that have been promised to them by God in their lifetime. They may not see them fully realized, but they are to stay the course, believing it. You starting to see the picture? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 23, and I want to show you what this preacher is referencing. What story this little church knows like the back of their hand, and yet has probably missed the point of it. Genesis chapter 23. And if you read the subtitle, yours probably says, The Death and Burial of Sarah. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Let me read a bit for you. We'll walk through and we'll start to see this come to light. Verse 1, now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a what? Come on. I am a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now let me ask you a question. If you had spent the better part of 62 years living as an illegal alien in a foreign land, and the wife of your youth, your best friend, your soulmate, dies, what are you going to do? Now add to that you're 175 years old. You're an old man. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to do what anyone else would do. You're going to go home. You're going to pack up and say, well, it was good while it lasted. You're going to go home, back to the land of your fathers. You're going to bury your wife in the family cemetery. And you're going to move in with the young folks in your family into the garage apartment. Just so you can stay out of the nursing home. But you're not going to stay there. You're certainly not going to stay there by yourself. But that's not what Abraham does. He doesn't quit. He rises from his mourning and before his dead, and do you know what he does? He shops for real estate. Literally, he shops for real estate among the Hittites. And in this act, do you know what he is saying to his family? In fact, do you know what he is saying to his family, his descendants, and to his God? I ain't going anywhere. I'm home. You promised me this land. I'm home. Ur is not my home. When he does this, he is not only saying it in a moment of commitment, but in buying this cemetery plot, he's saying, and here is where I'm going to die. That's commitment. That's commitment. You buy a cemetery plot... That means you're staying. I'm not going anywhere, and I'm buying a grave to show it. I remember a good friend of mine used to counsel young pastors. He said, when you 
uh, take a pastorate, one of the first things you need to purchase is a cemetery plot. He says that, sh- that shows your commitment. It also reminds you that when times get tough, you ain't going anywhere. You're going to die here. You're going to die here. You're going to do life with these people. You're going to love on them. You're going to marry them. You're going to bury them. And one day they're going to bury you because you're committed. And that is what he is saying here. He is sending a message to all his descendants for generation after generation. God promised this place as home. You believe it. You count on it because I did and I never saw it happen. Now, right off the bat, I could quit and I could say, whoo, I'm encouraged. If I'm undergoing some tough times, I'm starting to see that this is not the first time this has happened to a follower of the Lord. Well, in verses 5 through 16, we have the negotiation over the land. I would encourage you to look at it for your homework. I'm going to cover it briefly here, but it's got some interesting things in it. Let's just do a brief overview. Verse 5 Abraham goes to them. Verse 6, he, uh, they say, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse his grave for burying your dead. Abraham says, Great. Then I would like the cave of Machpelah. It's owned by a guy named Ephron. Um, and if he could just sell it to me, it's at the end of his field. I'll pay him full price. Look at verse 9. Now, Ephron is sitting among the sons of Heth. They're at the, the city gate. That's where business was transacted. And Ephron says this, verse 11. No, my Lord, talking to Abraham, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, I read this, and I'm like, that's really nice. This is kind of like um, this pagan guy is saying, Abraham, don't be silly. I'm not going to charge you. Take it. Bury your wife. It's like, it's like a Don Corleone. You want the field? Take the field. It's yours. It's yours. Take it. Bury your dead. But that's not what he's saying. You see, this is an ancient faux politeness. And just like a Don Corleone, he ain't given, he's expecting. Because what's he expecting Abraham to do? Oh, no, 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 I want to pay. No, 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 please let me pay. We know this from the South, right? You go out and you have an expensive meal, the bill comes, you know, you grab it. This one's on me. Let me do this. Let me take this, right? Okay? And there's some sincerity, a little bit, but what are you expecting? Oh, no, 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 let me take care of it. And if that guy didn't say, let me take care of it, you'd be like, whoa, what was the deal? It's not like I was really offering to pay, right? Don't be silly, I'm not going to charge you. No, you want the cave? Take the cave. There's more going on here, too. Did you notice it? Abraham wants the cave. He's willing to pay full boat for it, Right? Abram wants a mausoleum, but Ephron's going to make him buy the whole farm. I give you the field, verse 11, and I give you the cave that is in it. You see what's going on? 
Abraham, I, I, I want to buy the cave. I'm willing to pay full price. Of course you can have the cave and the field. I didn't really want the field, but no, you've got to buy the whole farm. Abraham says, fine, I'll take the field, and I will pay you full price. Just let me pay. Abraham wants clean hands on this thing. Verse 15. Again, it sounds like a Don Corleone. My Lord, listen to me. What's 400 shekels between us? The land's worth four, well, it's, it, it's worth 400 shekels, but what is that? Take it. 400 shekels is extortion. You've got to realize how expensive this is for this land. This is ridiculous. But you know what? No price is too much for his beloved Sarah. Plus, Abraham doesn't want anyone questioning whether it's his land in the future. So he weighs out what is, I think, equivalent about six and a quarter pounds of silver. It's a lot at the time. And he stakes his claim. I'm home. I may not own any, I may not own a P.O. box, but I got a gravesite. It's mine, and my descendants will know about it. And they will know that not only was Sarah buried here, but that I was buried here. And it works. It works. Abraham's faith spurs on his descendants. Let me explain to you. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, remember, goes to Egypt with his sons to avoid the famine. Joseph is already there as prime minister. Jacob goes, lives several years, dies. Right before he dies, he grabs Joseph and he says, Come here, son. Don't you dare bury me in this pagan country. You take my body home. Take my bones home. Promise me. And you can imagine him as an old man grabbing, you know, one of those, like, you know, that headdress that the Egyptians wear, grabbing and pulling him down saying, listen to me. Take me home. Okay, Dad. Okay, I'll do it. And sure enough, we find out in Genesis that Joseph, as the prime minister, takes this massive entourage back to Hebron, okay? Back to the cave of Machpelah and buries him. And then... Several years later, who else dies? Joseph dies. And we know that after Joseph dies, the people are put into slavery. There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, didn't care about Joseph, puts the people in slavery. Well, before Joseph dies, he does the same thing. He gathers his sons together and he says, don't you dare bury me in this country. Take my bones home. Literally, that's what he says. Take them home. And we know from Genesis 50 that Joseph is actually mummified, embalmed, according to the tradition of the Egyptians, and that the sons of Israel, 400 years later, take his mummy back. After 40 years of carting it around the wilderness. Did you ever think about that? I would not want to be that guy who was in charge of Joseph's mummy in your tent every night. I would not be sleeping well, okay? Who are you? I'm the Joe taker. I take care of Joe the whole time. But we know that he eventually does make it into the promised land and they bury Joseph in the cave of Machpelah. It works! He sojourns through the land. I believe in the promise. I'm not going home. He buys that gravesite, 
Sarah's buried there. He's buried there. Isaac's buried there. Jacob's buried there. Joseph is buried there. And they still don't own any land. If Abraham is living, we know Abraham was born, I think, in 2166 B.C. Joseph is not buried until around 1400 B.C. in the cave of Machpelah. They don't enter the promised land until about 1405 B.C. Meaning that promise that God made to Abraham, go forth from your country and I will give you land, was not realized for 600 years. But people believed. Can I tell you how this particular section of the country was realized and was believed? So this is in the hill country. You know the story. They enter the promised land. Moses dies. Joseph, uh, Joshua goes in. They start to conquer the land. They get to the hill country. And there's one guy that says, I, I, I want this section. I want this section that includes the cave of Machpelah. You know who it is? It's an 85-year-old man. One of the two spies that said, yes, let's go in 40 years ago. God will give us this land. We know one of them was Joshua. Who was the other one? Caleb. Caleb was 85 years old at the time. And he says, I can take them. Listen to this. This is from Joshua 14. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. And my strength was then, so it is now, for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country, which the Lord spoke on that day, and you heard from me on that day when the Anakim were there. With great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. And that 85-year-old man believed in the promise, strapped on his sword, and took the hill country, and the promise was realized 600 years later. Now, the interesting thing is I just explained to you what that first century church knew intrinsically, but couldn't see it in front of their face because they had shrunk back in persecution. They had a hard time believing the promise because they couldn't see it with their own eyes. And the preacher is effectively saying in a very loving manner, why do you have to see it with your own eyes to have genuine working faith? Abraham didn't see it with his own eyes. Isaac didn't see it with his own eyes. Jacob didn't see it with his own eyes. Neither did Joseph. And they start to realize that God's word never fails. Only we do. Stay the course. Sojourn in the land. Quit thinking that the promise is going to come now and everything's going to be hunky-dory and nice and easy. So what does that mean for us? Great story. Appreciate it, Rod. This is exciting. What about for us? Does this mean that we should all sell our homes and become gypsies? That's not a politically correct term anymore, is it? Um, travelers, whatever you want to call them, okay? No, hardly. The preacher here in Hebrews wasn't living in a tent. I imagine he had a home. The issue is not what he was living in, what Abraham was living in, but why he was living the way he was living, why he was living in a tent. Abraham was living in a temporary structure because the land 
would be permanently his, but God had not yet given it to him. God made him a promise that was dependent solely upon who? God, not Abraham. Even remember the covenant. He puts Abraham asleep to cut the covenant. In the same way, our redemption, our salvation, the promises God has made to us, is not based upon us effecting those promises, but simply being faithful to His Word, faithful to trust in His timing. And so, when we are in Abraham's situation, we have to resist two things. Did you ever think about that? There was, there was two things that Abraham resisted in trying to um, help God with the promise, you might say. The first one, write down forcing the promise. It's a good practical application. We need to resist forcing the promise. I could imagine it would be tempting for Abraham to say, I know God is going to give me the land. Uh, He just needs a bit of help on the timing. So I'm going to start helping him by buying up a few tracts of land here and here, kind of like the the whole, you know, cheap side of uh, the Monopoly board, right? I'm just going to help him along here. In fact, it's actually me being obedient because I believe it's mine anyway. And you know what? While I'm here, I might as well start getting to know the neighbors and blending in with the Canaanites, right? Because, I mean, if we're going to be here together for a while, why, why can't I just be a good neighbor? Can you see the problem with that? Abraham was promised something in the future, but he was to sojourn in the present. Abraham was to be in Canaan, but not of Canaan, right? Now, none of us have ever been guilty of this, right? The second thing Abraham had to resist was, write down, punting the promise. Punting the promise. He's been there 62 years and doesn't own so much as a condo. Maybe it's just time to call it quits. I think this is primarily what this first century Hebrew church is dealing with. Maybe that wasn't a call from God after all. Maybe this new covenant was, was just kind of faddish at the time. Oh, I like Jesus and all, but, but surely God is not done with the old covenant. Punting the promise means going home to Ur. Now watch the connection here. What did this Hebrew church want to do more than anything to relieve the pressure? Go home to the Old Covenant. Go home to the Jewish quarter. If they could go home to their people, all the worldly pressure would be off. But in order to go home, you have to reject the promise. And if these people drift home, they will have rejected the only means of salvation. That's how serious this is. This was their temptation. Let me ask you a question. What is ours? We're, we're spiritual sojourners, right? What, what is our temptation? I imagine it falls into one of those two points, either forcing the promise or punting it, right? Have you lost your zeal in following Christ? I mean, 
I think we all remember the days after coming to Christ where only being a Christian mattered. Nothing else. In fact, everything just seemed kind of vanilla compared to following Christ. But has your zeal waned over time? Now are the things that excite you, are, are they the career, your house, your, your, your car, your social circles, the kids' sports, maybe even just the busyness of life? We're not much different than this Hebrew church. The only difference really is they're enduring a bit more persecution than we are. But it's just only a year or two, or maybe even less than that on the timeline. I will tell you, there's one difference, though, here. This preacher loves the Hebrew church enough not to let them ride two horses. He loves them enough to say, you can't have it both ways. You are either a sojourner that believes in the promise, or you're not. seems like the church today says you can have both, Christ and the world, right? Claim Christ, but somehow still live in Ur, or, or go back to Ur. Well, this preacher is, he's not giving us a pass either. He's calling us to live like spiritual Bedouins. It doesn't mean that we don't buy homes or we don't build businesses. It doesn't mean that we don't raise kids. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in activities. But it does mean that our hearts are not tied to those foundations. Christ put it well in Matthew 6 in explaining the real meaning, the fulfillment of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But let's be honest, that's not easy. We all agree with that, we all understand the principle, but it's not easy. Let's bring this into modern day in the New Covenant with the 21st century church. Do we have a call from God? Yes, we learned it last week. What is? The only call in the New Testament is a call to salvation. Go forth from the world, your country, your family. Come and follow me. It's no different from when Christ started saying it to his apostles. Come and follow me. That is the call to salvation. And with that call comes promises. What are those promises? The promises are that what Christ paid for on the cross, you have been saved, and one day that salvation will be fully realized, and we will be with Him, and we will be like Him. And there will be no more tears or pain or sorrow, and we will be with our Lord and Savior. That's the promise. But we will not realize that promise in our lifetime. It's an already but not yet. We're advancing His kingdom, but we still have this old fleshly suit of clothes. We still live in this world that is still hostile towards us. And it's tough. Because we want to be in the promised land now, right? 
But this is not our home. So really what we're talking about is that to seek our own peace now in the world is anchoring our soul here rather than anchoring at home in heaven. We have to realize that. When our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when we start to drift, what we are saying is, I want home to be here. I don't want the discomfort. I don't want the momentary light affliction. I want all the promises now, and I want them on my terms in my way. But that's not a working faith. That's not trusting in the things that are not seen. So how do we not reject the promise by building here and now? How do we sojourn like Abraham? How do we keep putting one foot in front of another instead of settling back in Ur? Well, look at our second point, and it's much shorter. Working faith thinks like a sojourner. Working faith thinks like a sojourner. You don't need to turn back there, but I'll read for you verse 10. It says, here's how, or here's why, sorry, how um, Abraham would think, why he was able to do what he was doing. He was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, this is very interesting because the preacher is making the argument that Abraham was able to endure the discomfort and patiently wait for the promise, not because it was ultimately land that was going to be his, but because he was ultimately going to be in a divine city. And it's not even a divine city in a physical sense. It's that he would be with his God. Righteousness would be realized. Listen to how the Apostle John writes the, about the eternal state in Revelation 21. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Whatever Abraham understood, he believed that God was both his creator and his redeemer. Remember, Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. So yes, he believes in the promise that physical land will be given, but ultimately, he is able to sojourn. He is able to not put down roots in this world because he's looking for the next. He's looking for being with God. And it was being with God in the future that drove him to endure in the present. Let me say that again. It was being with God, made right with God, in relationship with God in the future that allowed him to endure in the present. You think that plays with these first century Christians. You can endure in the present because God's promises are sure. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
Now, if Abraham could do this without a Bible and have this kind of mindset, how much more can we with 66 books on this side of the cross with 2,000 years of, of church history and faithful people living and dying because they're Christ's followers. You see, faith takes us beyond this life. Remember what Christ said to the Sadducees in Mark 12. They're, they're, they're trying to dispute with him about whether resurrection is real or not. And it's amazing how Christ responds. He says, have you forgotten? God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Remember what, you, what we see at the transfiguration, right? This means that the patriarchs that were faithful, the Old Testament saints, are now with God. The promises are realized. And guess what? That living intense bit, that was small potatoes compared to what they're experiencing now. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. Watch the author bring this together in verse 13. He says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A city for us. Amen? This Hebrew church is enduring persecution. They have left their worldly home, and it's costing them. Is that true of us? Yeah, and it's going to get worse. Their temptation is to punt the promise and go back home to alleviate the pressure. I imagine that's our temptation. Whether we actually say it or not, whether we actually ever think of apostatizing or not, by putting our foot into the worldly waters, that's what we're saying. Make it easier on me. Make it more comfortable on me. Maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to build a cabin here, right? The preacher says, no. Sojourn like Abraham. Live like he lived and think like he thought. Let me leave us with two practical things. I want to show you how they did this and how we can do this. Number one, hold things lightly. How practically do we sojourn like Abraham? Hold things lightly. Number two, hold promises tightly. Hold things lightly, hold promises tightly. Let me explain. These are two practical tools that are not about houses or tents or worldly success or lack thereof. It's about perspective. You say, but how can I change my perspective? Well, it takes spiritual and mental discipline. It takes a value shift. 
It takes both formative and corrective. But let's talk about the formative for a moment. Tell me if you agree with this statement. Not now, but later. You spend time in what you value, and you value where you spend your time. You spend time in what you value, and you value where you spend your time. If that is true, then if we can adjust how and when we spend our time, it will change our perspective. If we will spend more time in God's Word and with God's people, in doing so, we will start to see the value. Why? Do you realize the difference between God's Word, God's people, and everything else in the world? Do you know what the difference is? Everything else in the world is going to burn. The only two things God is taking off this planet are God's Word and God's people. These are eternal. The more time you spend in God's Word and with God's people, the more time you start to value and understand these are the things that last. And I'm not talking about being a holy huddle hill here and, and not engaging with unbelievers. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about what you value, perspective. And sometimes we lose perspective because we're not in it. We're not seeing it. But the more you can see it, the more you say, well, God's Word, God's people, relationships, seeing souls come to Christ, seeing people grow in Christ. Yeah, that's kind of more important than new furniture, job change, et cetera, et cetera. You see where I'm going with this? You start to see the difference. The things of the world start to fade into the background. But you may say, hey, I get what you're saying, Pastor, but, but there's certain things that still tug in my heart. There's things that, that cause anxiety, you might say it that way. Things like security, safety, um, comfortability, likability, things I desire. I mean, I feel like I can't help it. Well, if the formative is spending time with God's, in God's Word and with God's people, then the corrective is changing your perspective on things, whether it's physical things or whether it's, it's being liked. You have to kill the temptation to control, to have those things, to think those things make you happy. And so there needs to be regular daily times in your life where you choose something not based on, do I want this the most, but will this control me the least? Let me say that again. There has to be regular daily times in your life where you ask yourself not, do I want this the most, or is this the best for me, but what will control me the least? Ladies, maybe even for you, it's something simple when you're shopping, you're thinking, you know what, I really would like this particular outfit, but I know the deceitfulness of my heart, and I know if I have this particular outfit, it's going to cause me to think how many people are going to look at me, or what do they think of me, or be noticed. And so maybe you purposely choose, not the gunny sack, I'm not saying that, but you, know, you choose something that won't tempt you towards pride. Men, maybe it's, it's, it's that thing that you want, instead of buying brand new, you buy used. Or maybe it's buying the best thing that you want, but it's holding it with an open hand and letting others use it. You, you see where I'm going? Whatever it is, you have to ask yourself, not will this make me happy, not do I have to have this, not do I have to be liked, 
but what will control me the least? Because this stuff over here is going to burn. This is the only stuff that lasts. So we hold things lightly. Secondly, we hold promises tightly. These are our two tools, our practical tools. Hold things lightly, hold promises tightly. I think it helps understand that for centuries, no, for millennia, Christians focused more on the life ahead than on the life present. Why? Well, just the nature of living prior to the 20th century. The infant mortality rate was high, longevity rate was low, death and disease were a normative part of life. So you realize that, that this life is short and eternity is a long time. I mean, let's be honest, before antibiotics, most of us would either be dead or severely impaired from disease. The point is, is that they had a more acute sense of looking forward to being with Christ and being like Him. We've lost it because of our first world circumstances. So how do we regain it? Well, I think we regain it by actually thinking about, disciplining your mind to think about and talk about where the majority of our life, our eternal life, is going to be spent. You know, several years ago, uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a book simply entitled Heaven. And do you know what it was? He just took all the scriptures in the Bible that talked about heaven and just simply made observations. But for any reader of this book, you started to dwell on it more and think about it more. And, and not in a morbid sense, but in an amazing uh, sense of how great God is and how wonderful it's going to be, and how my perceptions were all off. The point is this. As Kent Hughes says, it is a dangerous thing when a Christian starts to feel permanently settled in this world. So we've got to change our perception. Paul says it well to the Philippian church. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of His power that He has given to subject all things to Himself. So Metro family, like this first century church that's hearing this from the pre preacher, we need to be reminded that a working faith sojourns like Abraham. Realize we're not going to see all the promises during our lifetime, but that they will be fulfilled and the future will come in God's timing. Let's be spiritual sojourners holding things lightly and holding promises tightly. Amen.